Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, this is Rohit from Life Self Mastery and I'm excited to have Ivan Zhao, who's the founder of Rebella, uh, who's a bioengineer with a PhD from uh, Princeton and a Schmidt uh, Science Fellow at Harvard. Uh, even excited to bring the newest pipe technology to consumer wellness. Uh, uh, Rivel has got the funding from Good Friends, VC, uh, Omex Funds, uh, Buckley Ventures, and others. A big thank you to Patrick Fisher from Inovia Capital for the introduction. Welcome to the show, Evan. Thank you so much, Rohit. Um, it's super nice to be here. Thank you for taking the time. Awesome. So, you know, um, you have a have an interesting journey. Uh, you've done your PhD. What, what made you decide to get into you know, biotechnology and, and create relevant. Yeah, so um, I guess I, I'm someone, I, I I think of myself as an academic nomad. I, I, I just did stuff that I found really interesting. Um, and I'm a firm believer that, you know, life and society has gotten better because of technology. And I wanted to be a part of that since I was very tiny. Um, when I was in undergrad, I was really into bioengineering and chemistry um, and I was trying to learn about the pharmaceutical space, how to make an impact in the drug discovery space. And when it came time to decide what I wanted to do next, um, I had this big inflection point in my career, whether to go into academia to do more PhD research or to go actually um, into industry and do, you know, uh, oil and gas or do computer science. Um, And I really decided that I was more interested in the innovation sector and trying to figure out completely new chemistries and technologies that we could bring into the world. Um, I had a really nice PhD. I I really enjoyed it. Um, And I think what it gave me was the freedom to explore new things and to really try my best to make an impact on as many fields as possible. Um, I think that's been a gift in my life is really having the freedom to explore different disciplines and figure out what I like to do and what I, what I liked actually working on. Um, I think that's really rare and, and I'm really fortunate to have had that experience. And I think halfway through my PhD, I, I realized that industry was where a lot of really great innovation was happening in this space, but it wasn't getting the, I guess, attention that acad- academia was getting because a lot of it wasn't sexy. It wasn't like, you know, uh, 30 years in the future kind of thing. A lot of it was a step-by-step kind of building blocks on how to make innovations. And that's where I kind of saw this space where using academic innovation and really trying to impact on industry could uh, could have a huge impact, which is taking newer technologies and applying it to industries that have not, not gotten stale, but have kind of stalled in innovation because making minute progress uh, processes pro- progress has not led to the yields that they would want. Um, and so, I, I, you know, I was looking for different things to work on towards the end of my PhD. And I fortunately had exposure with the innovation department at Princeton, who they were sponsoring different research projects. So I got to learn about the world, exciting world of venture capital, exciting world of startups. And really it just opened up my own kind of very narrow world into this VC space um, and this kind of high speed, um, high money, uh, kind of a high capital world. Um, and so, yeah, that's how I got in. And uh, I've never been able to stop thinking about it since. 
Yeah, no, I think th- that's super interesting. And, you know, I'm, I'm wanted to understand how was your experience in California Institute of Technology and your work as as PhD? Uh, you know, I, I've also done my uh, studies from university and it's always interesting for, for people to, uh, you know, uh, do their PhDs and they usually pursue a career in academics, but, uh, but how, how was your entire experience there in Princeton and, and California Institute of Technology? Definitely. Um, so... Caltech is a very academic place. I think a lot of people go on who do their PhDs or who go to undergrad at Caltech to go on to be professors. That's kind of what they instill in you, um, which is which is great. I think we need more professors and we need more people that teach. Um, but, you know, I found my time there to be extremely, I guess, eye-opening in terms of the crazy stuff people could do. And I found myself feeling, um, and this was, this was no fault of Caltech. It was no fault of really anything, but I really liked the things that my mechanical engineering friends were doing or my computer science friends were doing. And that was, they could take what they learned in class and they could make an immediate impact on the world, which for my field, chemical engineering, bioengineering is really difficult. Um, It takes, you know, years to put together new projects. It takes years to really um, create the thing that you want to, what you want to do. And, and uh, as an impatient kid, I think that was a big learning process for me is, how was I going to take all of my impatience and channel that into trying to do something really grand with my life? Um, so when I went to do my PhD, I, you know, I was, you know, was trying to look for ways to make an impact on the world more directly. Um, so my PhD wasn't on therapeutic development. It was actually on yeast engineering and bioengineering in general. It, you get really quick result times. You can get results in weeks and months. And that was really exciting because I was able to to slowly make the progress and really try to um, innovate at a scale that I wasn't able to do in undergrad. Um, and then, you know, academia is interesting because I think it's a really great program, but for, for what it is, it's a little bit uh, slow in terms of adapting to the world. Um, there's, uh, there's been a lot of news recently about, you know, even in terms of social issues, how far behind academia it is um, compared to other things. There's a lot of weird power dynamics in academia, um, more true in certain schools than others. But on top of all of that, it's an interesting kind of place because they're trying to train the future innovators of the world. And they're trying to train people that will take the moonshot projects but a lot of the system is designed for that really incremental <laughs> progress, right? If you if you want to get a career, you have to publish papers. In publish papers, you should be doing things that are more or less short shots. You should be, you know, trying to take, um, you know, the the right path forward. Whereas, you know, the way to make real innovation happen is to take these risks, right? Uh, the the people the thing people bring up is CRISPR, which was this like really weird bacterial defense mechanism that turned out to be the future of biotechnology with gene editing. And I don't think that really would have happened if, you know, uh, all the people that contributed to CRISPR stuck to the traditional academic pathway, which was, you know, we want to do the thing that gets us low hanging fruit, gets us as many papers as possible. So I found that to be very contradictory and, you know, I get a funny story. Now that you mentioned, you mentioned Patrick, um, after I had my PhD, when I was interviewing for my fellowship, Patrick was actually an interviewer. And I, at that point, I, you know, I, I was really convinced that I wanted to do academia. I, 
I liked doing research and I liked the idea of trying 10 projects at the same time. Um, but Patrick asked one question in an interview that, that really changed my life, which was, why wouldn't you do this in industry? What, what is industry missing that doesn't allow you to do this? And that was really a question that I thought about for a long time. And I reached back out to Patrick about that question, which is how we know each other. Um, it's very fortunate, been a very fortunate kind of decision in my life to reach back out. And I kind of came to the conclusion that academia can take the same moonshots that, sorry, that industry does, but they do it less often because of funding constraints. And the thing that's changing about the world is there's just been so much money in industry recently. That industry that used to be constrained by the money because you had to make profits, you had to make revenue, is no longer constrained by the money. Um, people can do moonshot projects, Google X, right? Google X, all the Microsoft labs, all of those really moonshot laboratories, they have been able to make grand innovations in these spaces. Um, you know, the canonical example is Bell Labs that unfortunately is not as uh, glamorous as it was before, but really industry has been able to create these hubs of innovation that, you know, in some ways surpasses what academia can do. And I think that's been something that, that changed in the last five to 10 years. Um, that I, I'm really excited about. And I think uh, the world will be a really interesting place when the heavy innovation centers are no longer schools and are actually these giant hubs. Today, I have an interesting stat for you to denote that the founder of Beautiful Lives increased the social media presence by 10x. They managed to publish consistently and effortlessly using a robust social media management tool called Social Pilot. Social Pilot is a cost-effective social media tool that helps businesses scale their social media marketing efforts. Use lifestylemastery.com slash social pilot to get a 14-day free trial. No, I, I think that's a, that's a super uh, analogy on, about, about your experience. And, you know, I want to deep dive into, into Revelers. You know, what, what is the uh, Revelers hair revival serum? And, you know, how did you go about uh, was it? Was it a pain point that you uh, had faced? And, you know, what, uh, what is it that you're trying to solve through this? Definitely. So the way that Ravella came about was, you know, uh, the pandemic happened and we were all kind of sent home from Harvard and we were just kind of looking for things to do. So we kind of looked at what we were doing and, and some of us were doing drug discovery projects. So we were trying to find things that could solve things like cancer. And the very same technology was interesting to me because it's not really a drug discovery technology it's using machine learning using synthetic biology to discover new drugs, you could use it for really anything. And it was kind of weird to me that nobody was using this really new technology, you know, in the past five years for something like consumer goods, like skincare, hair care, where people openly know that things don't work. And so, you know, I, I kind of, I was asking some friends, hey, why do you think this isn't happening? Um, and I couldn't come up with a good answer for it. So I figured maybe this is something we could try and then I could try and, and really make a difference. And you know, I actually thought up when I first started the project, I wanted to do muscle growth because I, you know, I, I grew up with, you know, all my friends were guys and I kept hearing about creatine and like the miracles of creatine and all those other things for lifting that kind of culture. But as I was thinking about it, I was thinking there's probably other things that are easier than muscle growth that there aren't real solutions for. And so really an inspiration came from me from my mother who she's been suffering from hair loss for her whole life. Um, you know, starting from when she was late thirties, she has been dealing with it for upwards of 20 years. 
And she really hasn't found a solution. She's tried everything. She's tried all the products on the market. And if you just dig a little deeper, you'll find that there's been very little scientific evidence on what helps with female hair loss or female hair thinning. And people really haven't done the necessary steps to discover what actually works. Um, instead, a lot of these project products have you know a lot of filler ingredients. They have things that are like nutrients that help you know add nutrients to the hair, but they don't really solve the core issues. Um, fortunately for male hair loss, there are some ingredients on there that help a lot, but they come with side effects. Um, but that being said, we I really wanted to focus on something that you know I think uh, I really wanted to do was help my mom grow hair again. Her her entire top part of her head is bald, so. I was thinking that that could just be something that is really awesome that um, if I could create a product that could help her with that. Uh, so we set out to, you know, have the company really go and discover something for hair growth and for really helping people get thicker hair where they want it. And we basically took the problem. We broke it down into a very engineering problem, which is unlike what other people do for other cosmetics. Usually what people do is, you know, if you think about how, you know, aloe vera was discovered, it was a plant and somebody one day was like, Hey, if I put this on my face, I don't feel as bad from sunburns. And that compounded over time has turned into a lot of skincare, a lot of what hair care is, but nobody's really broken it down into an engineering like concept. Um, like I was saying, I really envied my mechanical engineering friends because they could, they could start and they could build robots. They could start and they could build lofts that, you know, use the skills that they learned. Um, and fortunately, I was able to do that here. We were able to think about what what were the issues with hair? How do we get people to grow more hair? And what were we actually trying to solve? And we were able to quickly create an engineering problem out of this. And after about, uh, it actually was only nine months, we're able to bring a product to market. Um, and our product hasn't launched yet. It's launching next month. But it was a really rapid process that I don't think could have been done without this engineering-based approach. Um, and this is something that, you know, I think has been a dream of mine, really taking the engineering mindset and applying it for something where it really wasn't relevant before. Um, and so that, that's where we went with the hair serum. And now we've packaged it, we formulated it so that it can absorb well into the scalp and help people really stimulate the hair follicles underneath your scalp and get your hair to grow. Um, so the, the way that it works is, is uh, exactly that. All we're doing is communicating to the hair follicles, hey, it's time for you to grow a little bit more, bud. And the hair follicles grow a little bit more. And as we add more and more of it, it grows slightly faster and slightly faster. Um, so there's a very basic concept. As you can probably imagine, this will work on almost anywhere in your body. Um, you know, I, uh, you notice that I shaved my head. I don't know if people can see this, but I did shave my head to test the product. And when, when we actually apply it to our heads, you see hairs growing out on other areas of my face, like in between my eyebrows and my forehead, I have these hairs growing that, you know, normally wouldn't grow there, but because the, our serum is stimulating the hair follicles, we're getting hair growth in places that we're applying the serum. Um, so it's quite incredible at what this engineering can do. You know, I think, I think this is super interesting because uh, a couple of things we talked about is, uh, you know, the same process can be used to, uh, to solve cancer, and uh, you know, I, uh, I I know the product is coming out next month, but I would love to use the product because <clears throat> the, uh, I'm losing a lot of hair, and you know, I'm worried I'll, I'll go bald in a couple of months. So definitely, you know, I would love to use the product and see if it it works. And really interesting to see that you know you've been using the product, and 
you've been the uh, you know tester <laughs> so looks like it really works uh yeah, yeah and uh, you know i was wondering you know what is the cost of building the product and you know uh, unit economics do you, do you do you build the product in china or is the product all made in made in us it's all made in the united states um okay. so okay. you know i mean part of building a company during covid is we have a lot of weird covid things happening uh-huh. um it has been a strange couple of months for the world or a couple of years for the world. And what has happened actually, and this is very, it's good for the United States, um, is the shipping has become prohibitively expensive from places like China. And when you try to get uh, supplies out of China these days, it takes months to get anything. And so, you know, I, do you remember when the giant ship uh, blocked off the Suez Canal and all yes. shipping stopped? Uh, that was, you know, that was about when we were thinking about ordering raw materials and really trying to figure out what we were doing. Um, and so, you know, I, we were able to adapt and we were able to figure out that there are a lot of manufacturers in the United States that can create a product that, that uh, works very well at a price that's affordable. Um, and fortunately, you know, we have this extra kind of technology in our products. So we were able to get that lead ingredient synthesized. We were able to get all of that done without a lot of other worries. Um, the What we have to factor in is it took us a lot of money to do R&D for this product. So we we raised um, a really early pre-seed round um, from some great angels to start the discovery process. And the way that AI for drug discovery works is you need data. So you have to generate lots of data in order to feed it into the machine learning algorithm so that it can learn what is good and what is bad for this process. And after we did that, uh, we were were then able to order completely novel ingredients that we could test in-house. So that entire process cost a lot of money. It it was kind of like the full drug discovery process, Um, but we have to price that into what we're selling. And then we have to... Um, make sure that we can keep the lights on so that we can keep doing exciting projects um, like stuff for skincare, stuff for muscle growth, and other things that we have in our pipeline. Got interesting. And, uh, you know, I understand that, you know, uh, you're into, uh, you're into uh, launching the product uh, by next month, but now how, how do you look at, uh, you know, since you're like the product leader for the company, how do you look at uh, decision-making process when you're building building the product and uh, you know do you, do you think the the velocity or decisions a founder takes in the entire day uh, you know how does it determine the quality of the company and the product definitely and I, I think this is something that I had to learn really quickly um, you have to make a lot of decisions when it comes to really launching a consumer product there's a lot of decisions that you have to make um, within the day and you know within a couple hours sometimes. Um, especially because there's all these delays that are happening. Things have to get out as soon as possible, which manufacturers you have to go with, all these kinds of things. Um, this is something that I found to be really difficult coming from academia, where the general methodology is uh, pray and spray, where you try as many different things as possible, and it's something usually turns up. Um, it's why things are generally slower in academia than in industry, because you know there's not a really specified approach. You don't have one thing that you're really trying to do and really trying to push through. Um, so when we make decisions about the product, we really try to come at it from two angles. And the first is minimal vial product. What do we have to make so that people are happy with what we're doing? 
And for, for consumer space, the packaging has to be spot on. So everything needs to be pretty. The branding needs to be very nice and things need to feel like it's worth the money that we're charging them. It's worth trying out something completely new. So that's something that we, we had to learn as a team. And we really had to dig into is how do we make people feel like, you know, this could be the greatest serum in the entire world, but people have to feel like that too. It can't just be it can't just be words. It has to be an emotion that comes with the product because that's why people buy things um, is, is emotion. We have that as a major decision point. And then the other decision point for our company as a whole is how do we make it so that people correlate Ravella with stuff that works? And that's, this is the longer vision of the company is we're, you know, we're not trying to sell haircare products. We're not trying to sell skincare products. That's not really the goal of Ravella. The goal of Ravella is to change the way consumer goods work is to really set a standard that nobody else has really done before in terms of efficacy, in terms of things that work and things that deliver over and over and over again. So when we decide what products we want to launch and how we formulate the product, all that stuff, one of the key decision points is, will people be able to see the results and how will this influence how they feel about the brand long-term? So five to 10 years from now, because that's what we really want to be. We want the stamp of Ravella to be something that people can look at and, and be like, hey, this has Ravella on it. That means that they've done their research and they really know that it works, um, which is very difficult. Um, it also requires us to think in a very long-term uh, way. So um, that's why we went with the hair care product first. It's not because you know hair care is inherently easier. It's not because you know it's not as good as skincare or something else. It's because you can see hair. And that's that's something that we really liked about that particular product is if we can get people to grow hair, which, which we can, then we can get them to realize that our stuff works. And by doing so, we really provide people with an evidence point, right? A point where they can go to the friends and say, hey, like I actually have more hair growing here. I have thicker looking hair here. And so um, that really is another part of a key point that I think a lot of venture capital funded companies have to be concerned about that um, normal companies don't because th their goal is to sell products. Got it. And, uh, and uh, uh, you know, obviously you talk about, uh, uh, you know, during pandemic, you know, Revela really, uh, really had a push, but uh, what were some of the biggest learnings on, you know, how to run uh, Revela during during a pandemic? And uh, uh, I'm sure you're looking at, at hiring people, we already hired people, but uh, what, what attributes do you look for for, for getting uh, a a level you know players on your on your team. Definitely. Um, so I think during pandemic, it's it's hard to build team dynamics because you know a lot of people are working from home. So we were very fortunate in that when we actually were were working more in person, uh, pandemic had subsided slightly. So a lot of regulations were in the Boston area were loosened up because a lot of people were vaccinated. So we were able to do some in person office. Um, you know, a couple of times per week. And that's really helped with company culture and really helping, you know, to solidify who we are as a company. I would say in terms of, you know, really recruiting the right people, we basically just look for cockroaches, right? So we look for people that will do what it, uh, do what it takes to get stuff done and people that are relentless in the pursuit of high quality. Um, I saw a, you know, I saw a couple of talks on this, um, previously. And really the, the general theme has been, you need to make sure that everybody in the company 
is working towards the goal and that they will do whatever it takes to get the goal done, especially early stage. Um, all of our hires are basically generalists. So they do everything um, that the company needs to do. We we have our machine learning scientists coordinating some uh, you know some stuff with packaging, some stuff with the website development. We have you know I'm doing a lot of Google Ads. I'm doing a lot of other things, and that's really necessary because I think there's just so many random things that a startup needs to execute on. You need to be able to one trust the people that you're working with, and two you need to be able to make sure that they can adapt to those things. Um, so. The piece of advice that I got actually from Patrick was if you're going to work with somebody, especially this early stage, you need to make sure that they can do the job that you need them to do better than you think that you can do it. And I, I think that's something that's really important that a lot of people don't, don't appreciate because, you know, as someone who's, I, I'm a, you know, I, I, I think, uh, I think well of myself, but not super highly, but if I don't trust what somebody else is doing that I'm going to spend extra effort out of my schedule to tr- to redo what they're doing. It's going to make them feel bad. It's going to make me feel bad for doing extra work. And that's unacceptable in a startup because time is of the essence and you can't be redoing everything. So I would say that has been the best piece of advice that I've gotten is you really just need to trust at the end of the day, after all the interviews, that this person is going to execute better than you would have. So um, whatever happens, that's, that's all you can really ask for. Mailman is a, email assistant that shields you from unimportant emails, minimizing interruptions and making your days calmer and more productive. You can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM, uh, which gives you the benefit of 15% off for the first year on the annual plan, uh, which already has 20% discounted compared to the monthly plan. So you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM. All right. And, uh, uh, you know, you run this business out of passive stress. Uh, do, do you think, uh, you know, Silicon Valley is the mindset or do you think, you know, some of the best of talent and companies can come out of the smaller ecosystems? Definitely. Um, so Boston is very well known for life science venture capital. Um, but the way that life science venture capital works is, is very different than Silicon Valley. Um, a lot of times they'll recruit a very senior C-level team to then raise like $50 million and then, you know, um, launch a drug, right? That's the, that's the goal of a life science technology company. Um, Silicon Valley is very different. They believe in founder-driven teams. They believe that the founder is, is the essence of a company. Um, so it's, it's extremely different than the technology focus in Boston. Um, I will say what I've experienced these last couple of months is that there are no longer really regional restrictions. Um, because of Zoom, because of the pandemic, nobody really tra- nobody traveled when we were fundraising. And so meetings all happened through Zoom. Deals are happening through Zoom. Nowadays, the venture environment really encourages fast decision-making and really just betting on people. And so I think anybody in the United States, no matter where you are, can at this point raise money from Silicon Valley or from New York or from LA, where those, uh, those hubs are. Um, it's really disrupted the way people think. And, and online people are all moving to Miami or, or Houston. Um, and that's really, that's been enabled by the Zoom economy and how people are interacting online. And, you know, uh, uh, I say in some of the major uh, cities, people are moving out of uh, the, uh, the major cities. But, uh, but what it leads to a remote first culture is that you, then you're competing with a lot of uh, talent uh, uh, everywhere, you know. So, uh, uh, how do you look at the decentralization of talent moving forward? Uh, and do you think you know people would 
want to live in the, in the bigger cities and, and work uh, in in that in that setup? Yeah, um, I I do think people you know there's a lot of more people that want to work remotely. We're very fortunate because we don't you know we have tech talent, but we're we're not hi- actively hiring loads and loads of engineers. I know that engineers and computer scientists that's where the kind of crunch for talent is right now. Um, very fortunate. We, we work with a lot of marketing. We work with a lot of um, people not in that really crunch uh, space. But I will say that I do feel like more and more people are missing the in-person experience. And so there, there, are, there are a lot of younger people that are preferring to go into work because after about a year and a half of just staying at home, I think it, it gets very lonely. And so... Um, there, there is going to be a very interesting shift. I, I can't predict exactly how it's going to go, um, but I, I do think people are going to be more and more open to going back into the office, which means a flock back into the bigger cities. Um, I will have a plug. So we're not actually in Boston. We're in a small town outside of Boston, which I have really enjoyed having a company here because we're close enough to the city where we have access to city talent, but we also, the rent is really cheap. We can uh, keep low, overheads low. And it's overall been a very pleasant experience because you're not dealing with heavy traffic going everywhere. So um, I think maybe the suburbs of the big cities might be getting a boost from this pandemic. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think uh, that's what I've seen in uh, some biggest cities like like London and other cities uh, in in Southeast Asia. But, uh, uh, you know, a lot of founders tie their identity to the the future uh, or to the company. You know, uh, how do you, how do you look at Think about your own identity and how it is tied to Revila, which is the company. Do you, do you keep it separate? And you know how do you how do you look at uh, a situation where you know uh, you, you get so engrossed in running the company? Do you do you feel that your identity is tied with how the company is going to uh, perform? Yeah, um, I, I I do feel like my identity is very tied to the company. We, I, I think that's probably necessary because founders, I think if you don't have the skin in the game and you're not as invested, it's very difficult to succeed, especially in the kind of high capital world where people are, are throwing money at things. Um, you really have to feel like this is the right thing to do and this, this is what you want, what, want your impact to be on the world. Um, I found that having hobbies helps to, um, to soothe some of that. So I, I play soccer in my spare time. And the nice part about working at consumer goods is I've been able to learn a tremendous amount from this space that I didn't know before. And I think as long as you have that kind of learning experience and really feeling like you're not just doing that one thing that you really, really want to do um, and leaving your comfort zone, it's actually a good thing to be tied to the company because that means your, your identity is constantly evolving. And the way that you think about how you're selling things and how you are interacting with your own life is constantly evolving. Having that kind of introspection really helps. And I would encourage, you know, if, if somebody feels that their identity is too tied to the company, that they try having their company do some side projects where they can then explore things that might be beneficial to the company, but also are more beneficial for themselves. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. You know, I, I play calls and, you know, I like to read, I think, 
uh, as you rightly mentioned, you know, uh, side projects and side hobbies, uh, like podcast is like a side uh, project for me. It, it does really help the company, but really helps uh, the person to grow as well. I hope more, more founders uh, listen to this story. But uh, I quickly want to do the top three. What's your favorite business book? So I, I'm going to be really honest with you. So we, I really like Zero to One. And this is a book that everybody told us to read. But I was thinking about it. And uh, there's another book that I would recommend called Startup Leadership. Um, it's by Professor Derek Liddell at, at Princeton. Um, I actually took his class. It was an amazing experience. And this is a book that really combines leadership with psychology and thinking about different personality types, how people interact, and what what drives people to do what they do. Um, there's a really interesting quote from you know from the class that I remember where the one of the founders that he brought in said, "This company is not going to fail because it's a revenge company." And I I thought that was really interesting, and that's something that he delves into in the book is that revenge is an intrinsic motivation that really drives people to work as hard as possible and have their identity be identity be ingrained into the company because that, that's all you really want is that the kind of implicit motivation. And I think if you're interested in exploring the more um, psychological, the reasons why people behave the way that they do, this is a, an excellent book. Yeah, no, I, I think I'm definitely going to read it. Uh, Looks super interesting. I'll put that in the, in the show notes. Uh, you know, if you could go back in time, when you started Revilla, I know it's it's, uh, it's been uh, just a year for you, but what are the one thing you would have focused on or done anything differently? Definitely. Um, so I think we have had a lot of success working with smaller companies, companies that don't have a ton of people, don't have a ton of reputation and are eager to win with us. Um, you know, this, we have an amazing website design firm called Pivify. We have, you know, other amazing firms that we work with. And we've noticed that the smaller ones that we work with have been the most successful. They have really delivered. They're always on schedule and they really want to make sure that we're happy and that we're satisfied with, with what they deliver. Whereas when we worked with a bigger firm in the past, that has been an awful experience. They don't prioritize a smaller company. And, you know, it's, it's, a uh, it's a dreadful experience to say the least. So I would just tell, you know, former Evan, um, work with the, work with the little guy because they're going to put in all, uh, all the effort. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. You know, sometimes smaller companies, they, they really put in that kind of effort because they want to work with, you know, startups and they understand the, the, uh, you know, the ethos and what goes behind building a company. Um, and we have referred online tools, example, Gmail, Slack, Zoom. Uh, yeah, so I, we, we like Slack a lot, so we use Slack, but I will say, I'll make a plug for another company that we use. Um, we, we really like the tool called Main Street. So they're a tax credit system where you do like a 15, 30 minute interview with them and they're able to save you a bunch of money through taxes. I would recommend anybody who, um, hasn't looked into tax credits to really talk to them because they do a phenomenal job. It's a super easy process. Um, and I think when I was using it, I was like, this is what a SaaS should be. It's an extremely easy, happy process that saves us much money. All right, we'll put that in the show notes. Um, yeah, what are the best way people can reach out to you and know, and know more about Revela? Definitely. So we have a website, getrevela.com. So please check out our website. Um, join the waiting list if you're interested in the hair serum. We have an about page that talks a little bit about our story. Um, I can also you know, share with you my email. And if, if somebody's interested, they can reach out directly. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think we'll we'll put that in the in the show notes. Uh, uh, and thank you so much for taking our time speaking to us. I really enjoyed my conversation with you. Thank you so much, Rahit. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.